Today, I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio, Dr. Harshan Jayakumar. Dr. Harshan Jayakumar is a dual-trained respiratory, sleep and general medicine physician working in Southeast Melbourne and Gippsland. Having graduated from Monash University in 2013, Dr. Jayakumar completed his internship and basic physician training through Monash Health in 2018. Following this, he accepted a four-year dual training position in respiratory and general medicine through Monash Lung and Sleep and La Trobe Regional Hospital, receiving his Royal Australasian College of Physicians Fellowship in 2020. He then completed post-fellowship training in acute and general medicine at La Trobe and a 12-month sleep fellowship at Monash Health. Today, we'll be discussing the latest updates in asthma management. This podcast is brought to you by DPM Financial Services. DPM is a specialist medical financial advice firm that aims to empower doctors of Australia to make the right financial decisions and achieve their financial goals. We do hope you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Harshan, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. The topic of today's discussion is an update in asthma management. Harshan, to begin with, can you explain how asthma is diagnosed today? Certainly. So uh, it's important to match our clinical presentation for asthma to objective measures. And listeners will be well aware of the typical presentation of asthma being that of shortness of breath, cough, chest tightness and wheeze with very clear triggers such as changes in the weather, viral infections, increasing uh, allergy exposure such as in the spring months to pollen and dust as well as nocturnal symptoms. Increasingly, we're finding a diagnosis of asthma in atypical settings, and it's important to then really take a detailed history as to when these symptoms are occurring and matching that to uh, the risk of asthma. Viral-induced or viral-triggered asthma is a very common presentation that may be the only time patients experience symptoms, but those symptoms can be debilitating in the setting of a virus and can linger for a long time after the initial viral infection. Part of our diagnosis of asthma today has shown an increased role for biomarker testing to phenotype the underlying asthma, which is important in guiding our management strategies as these have improved over the time. In the last 12 to 24 months, we have noticed an increase in our presentation of asthma in patients post-COVID-19, uh, and this may include patients who had a underlying risk of asthma already prior to developing COVID-19, as well as patients who have only developed symptoms post their viral infection, but have failed to improve. How is asthma diagnosed currently? So as mentioned before, uh, our clinical history and an examination is incredibly important and to lead to the increased suspicion for an asthma diagnosis. On examination, we're obviously listening for wheeze, uh, and in particular, it's important to listen to the end of expiration as the signs may be very subtle. When we are suspicious of asthma, lung function testing is certainly warranted, and these may be the classical spirometry findings of an obstructive deficit with significant bronchodilator reversibility to Ventolin, 
but more subtle features may be present, including that of a restrictive pattern in the setting of gas trapping. Inclusiveness may be prevalent in their response to Ventolin, as well as uh, evidence of an elevated gas transfer when corrected for alveolar volume may also be shown as a KCO. If lung function testing is alone is not sufficient to clinch a diagnosis, we can perform bronchial provocation testing. That may be with a molecule such as mannitol, which is known to increase airway hyperreactivity. Or we could look towards triggering the patient with a known trigger for them, such as exercise. In the GP setting, peak flow has always been a readily available tool, and we know that day-to-day -day variability in peak flow recordings of more than 8% does lead to a higher risk of asthma. What are the key challenges faced by healthcare professionals in effectively managing asthma? So as we've been discussing, the diagnosis of asthma is not as simple as we once thought it was, and it's important to recognise an asthma presentation versus that of another condition, and some of those may include middle airway syndrome conditions such as vocal cord dysfunction or excessive dynamic airway compromise, which can mimic asthma in many ways. It's also important to recognise comorbid conditions of asthma and other airway conditions such as sinusitis, which can have overlapping symptoms. We are showing increasing importance in identifying the triggers for asthma, which would warrant an escalation of therapy, especially those with mild to moderate disease. And it's also important to educate patients on the importance of their compliance, particularly to avoid fixed airway remodelling. You mentioned the role of phenotyping asthma. Could you explain this further and how it is done? So phenotyping asthma has always been uh, conducted by respiratory physicians, but has increasing importance uh, in the current day, given the treatments we have available. We typically look at asthma as either type 1 or type 2 inflammation, where type 2 inflammation is more of an eosinophilic or allergic phenotype. There are some biomarkers that we can test for uh, on blood tests, and this includes IgE, both as a total IgE, as well as allergen-specific, looking for specific triggers that patients may have, whether that be dust, pollen-specific foods, or aspergillus. A blood eosinophil count is also important to recognise, and this uh, it would help us phenotype asthma even in a normal eosinophil count as per the laboratory's reference range. Typically, we would recognise an eosinophil count of 0.3 uh, in a patient who is not on corticosteroids or 0.15 in someone who is, as having a higher risk of type 2 inflammation in the setting of their asthma. Other tests that we can perform to help phenotype asthma include a pheno or fraction of exhaled nitric oxide, as well as skin prick testing, looking for specific allergy responses. It's important to recognize that these tests can be performed and be normal even in the setting of type 2 inflammation. And so we would usually re recommend performing the blood tests at least twice and to do so when off steroids and ideally at the start of a flare if possible for the most accurate results. Sometimes in the setting of significant sinus disease, nasal examination may be of benefit, and this may include fiber-optic nasal endoscopy and sinus imaging looking for evidence of polyposis. Can you explain the most recent guidelines for management of mild to moderate asthma? Certainly. So uh, in the last five to ten years, uh, the GINA guidelines for asthma, which are recognised worldwide, have been updated uh, with an increasing uh, reliance on dual inhaled corticosteroids and LABA 
uh, which is typically in the setting of budesonide ephemeterol or Simbacort as a first-line reliever and inhaler for mild asthma. This has been reflected in the PBS with a listing for Simbacort as a mild asthma therapy first line. We've also got evidence uh, over the last five years that the addition of a long-acting anti-muscarinic agent has, does help to prevent hospitalisation and exacerbations and should certainly be considered in um, a group of people where a ICS-LABA combination alone is not sufficient. There is a role for escalating inhaler therapy during known triggers, particularly in those who are only using it as, on an as-needed basis. And most importantly, providing patients with a written action plan and educating them on when to use this uh, has been shown widely to improve both treatment responses as well as minimising hospitalisations and ED presentations. If asthma symptoms persist despite inhaler therapy, what are other important things to consider? So typically we would start at the uh, underlying issues of inhaler technique and adherence and assess these before moving on further. We would also uh, relook at the triggers that may be causing these symptoms and try to minimise these or avoid these as much as possible. And it's important to look beyond uh, the standard triggers and think about things in the home as well as in the occupational setting that may be causing these symptoms. Smoking cessation is certainly important and this may include uh, the use of e-cigarettes or vapes uh, which are of increasing prevalence these days. It's also important to educate patients around the role for short-acting beta agonists as well as reliever therapy in general and make sure that they are using this in the appropriate settings, that they understand when to use these and identify if there are other drivers for their concern, which may be things such as anxiety, which could be manifesting itself as chest tightness or shortness of breath as well. Once we have gone through those, we also look to other known comorbidities which affect asthma control. Sinus disease is very commonly linked with asthma and uh, certainly warrants treatment in the same setting as trying to uh, control asthma symptoms. Obstructive sleep apnea has been known to affect asthma control, as has gastroesophageal reflux disease. Obesity certainly plays a role in asthma control, uh, and a weight loss strategy is important, recognising that this is quite difficult, particularly in patients with significant symptoms. And finally, in patients with uh, a significant allergy profile, desensitisation therapy uh, should be considered. How would you manage an exacerbation of asthma? So for mild exacerbations managed in the home setting, uh, there's certainly a role for escalating inhaler therapy, uh, particularly in those who are not already on a preventer to add this in. You could consider a short course of corticosteroids, which usually do not need a wean and can be conducted over five to seven days and then stop. And a preventer should certainly be commenced in anyone who's had an exacerbation of asthma that's required corticosteroid usage. If an action plan hasn't been conducted or completed already at this point in time, that should certainly be considered um, during that exacerbation. When should a GP refer for asthma management? So GPs should refer for asthma management at any stage when they feel uh, the patient would warrant from specialist respiratory input. In particular, though, difficult to control asthma, patients with recurrent exacerbations, or where there needs to be clarity around the diagnosis, uh, would all be valid reasons for a referral. Respiratory physicians are also able to identify and optimise comorbidities that can aid in asthma control and can devise treatment plans for those who seem to be intolerant to standard therapy.
What other treatments can a respiratory physician offer for severe or difficult to control asthma? So in the uh, current day, we have a number of treatments available to us uh, that have been shown to significantly improve asthma control as well as quality of life. Listeners may recognize these as biologic therapies, uh, which all target type 2 inflammation. We have four drugs currently available on the PBS uh, if prescribed by a respiratory physician or a specialist uh, with expertise in asthma management, as long as the patient meets certain criteria. These four drugs are omelizumab, dupilumab, mepolizumab, and benralizumab, and they all target different pathways of type 2 inflammation. They all have different degrees of efficacy uh, based on the area that they are targeting, but overall they reduce oral corticosteroid use, minimize exacerbations and hospitalizations, and have been shown to improve symptom scores and quality of life. They are injectable agents uh, with a interval dosing of between two weeks and eight weeks. Typically, the first doses are given in a supervised setting, and it's important for GPs to be aware of some of the side effects of these medications uh, as they may be required to identify and treat these. Injection sites uh, reactions tend to be the most common side effect, which are very easy to treat conservatively, uh, but some of the more unique side effects, particularly that for dupilumab and the risk of conjunctivitis, should be recognised. Thank you for your time here today in the Pod MD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast on current asthma management? Certainly. So number one would be that it is important to both confirm the diagnosis of asthma as well as trying to phenotype the disease profile, which will drive management strategies. Number two is that managing the comorbidities that are linked to asthma is very important in optimising overall asthma control. And number three recognizing that there are new therapies and treatment strategies available that have had excellent efficacy, uh, including the use of inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists as first-line therapy, as well as the opportunity to escalate to biologic therapy in the right patient. Thanks again for your time and the insights you've provided. Thank you very much for having me.